Well, I've been feeling very embarrassed and very uncomfortable because William keeps on saying that we're explaining things at St. Helens on a Sunday night without any jargon. And I've been longing to get to my notes quickly to remove all the jargon that I'm sure is here. However, I took courage halfway through the service. I was getting more and more depressed as I knew you would hear jargon after jargon when I realized that one of the extraordinary things about the teaching ministry of Jesus is that it is so lacking in it. If you'll turn to page 1047, to Luke 13, and the passage that is called the narrow door, I think you'll be amazed, and I'm not going to go into this now, but as we look at it and study it tonight together, I think you will be startled as I am startled with the amazing way in which Jesus can teach the greatest truths in the simplest way, with powerful little analogies and metaphors and so on, and without any jargon at all. And so at least he is free of that, and I hope you'll forgive mine. Right, well, we're going to join Jesus now tonight. Not at all a dramatic situation, it's a very ordinary thing, and you'll see in verse 22 that Jesus was going through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. So this is no very special time. We're going to meet Jesus and listen to him in the course of his ordinary ministry. And of course he was asked questions, sometimes asked questions that were very difficult to answer, you would say. And here is one of them in verse 23. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And we might like to know the answer, but you're not going to get it tonight. Because as you know, if you're a Bible student at all, we never seem to have our, sat our curiosity about the life of the world come satisfied in that kind of way. But a direct answer is given in verse 24. Lord, are there only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I say, many will try to enter and will not be able to. So the question is pushed straight back to the questioner. And they are asked and told and commanded to make every effort to enter the narrow door and not to be left behind. It's rather a somber answer, isn't it? It's not as encouraging as we might hope. Many will try to enter and will not be able to. Now it's this grim and alarming reality that we're going to be studying for four Sunday nights together. Each night is going to be complete in itself. And our theme can be summarized in one short word. It's already been used a number of times tonight. It's a word that the church is scared of using today because it seems harsh and severe and unloving and the church doesn't want to appear that to the great pagan multitudes outside. And so this great word, or this little word that means so much, has virtually disappeared from the pulpit today. And yet it's a word that is in common currency in the big wide world outside the church, in the square mile where uh, many of you will work, where I work in the weekdays. It's used a hundred times a day, maybe a thousand times a day if you add it all up in a large office like Freshfields. Listen to Mr. Everyman. I was going to get to jot down one or two, but I found I just kept on writing. I was going to say, listen to Miss Everyman as well, but I think you ladies are more delicate in these matters. So I'll just say, listen to Everyman in the office at Freshfield. My predecessor left this department in a hell of a mess. I gathered Tyson knock hell out of poor old Frank. I asked my son why he did something so stupid, and he said he did it for the hell of it. Well, my son Jim has just bought a motorbike. He was hell-bent on killing himself. Oh, hell, there's that telephone again. Ask them to stop calls through to the office, please. Where did you go for your holders last year? We went to a real hell-hell on the Costa Brava. 
There was marvellous sun, but it was full of lager lights, chips and bad sewerage. No, Bill, please don't interrupt, but you haven't got a hope in hell of getting that past the tax man. Go to hell, John, I'm busy. What the hell is that car doing, cutting in on me like that? Doesn't he know how to drive? Like Monday mornings, what do you mean? Like hell I do. You know, old Bill went hell for leather up that one-way street, hoping that no one would see him. It's a good shortcut. And there at the exit was a police car. Oh, hell was that loose, I can tell you. Now, of course, those are quite frivolous, and in a sense, they're rather ridiculous, aren't they? But I just happened to start to write them down, and I found I couldn't stop. It's such a popular word. I don't think Christians use that hell word very frivolously like that. And it's not because they are prigs. It's because when you're converted, when you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, in a strange way, God cleans your mouth out, and you no longer find something for joking matter that you did before. Indeed, one of the first things that happens to you when Christ comes into your life is that you get a great concern for your family and friends as they don't know about him. You get worried about them. You wonder really whether they're going to miss everything as you were missing everything. Now, Sunday evening at St. Helens is not lecture time. I could gather up all the material on this rather grim subject from the New Testament. We'd be here, I think, for several hours. Indeed, I could gather it all together from one gospel only, and it would take a long time, and I'm not going to do that. Because a sermon is a sample. By a sample, I mean what the merchants in the city do, or used to do. They used to go down to the docks. In fact, I can uh, remember this in my time. And they would get a sample from one of the boats that was coming up to London Bridge, and they would look at that sample and then decide whether to buy the whole cargo. Indeed, if you go to a coffee merchant still, you'll find that. You'll find a long... Uh, a shelf with lots of samples of coffee and a man uh, brewing coffee all day, drinking it and spitting it out. Not a pretty sight, but it means that you get some decent coffee in the end yourself, I suppose. So tonight I've chosen a sample. I did it almost at random. I did it partly because I've never preached on this particular passage before in my life. So I thought it would do me good, and I hope that you'll join in as well. You'll see it there at the bottom of that first column on page 1047, and it's entitled here in the New International Version, The Narrow Door. I'm going to change that because as I read this uh, over and over again this week, it seemed to me a much better title would be The Rejected Seekers. And that, incidentally, is a theme, I was going to call it a little theme, but it's certainly a theme that in various different ways keeps coming up in the teaching of Jesus. Rejected Seekers. You know, we're rather glad to say here in the pulpit, if you seek for God, you'll find him. And yet there are all these stories in the Gospels of people who did seek and did not find. People who went to a great wedding feast. But they came late. They found the door was locked and shut, and they couldn't get in. And they banged on the door, but it was no good. Another great banquet, and another story, when somebody enters casually, thinking that he's at home there, and suddenly the master of the feminist throws him out. Tries to get in, but he can't. He's not welcome. So follow the basic line of instruction here in the story. You'll see really that it all hangs together. Although there are many sayings here that Jesus must have used, I think, many, many times in his teaching, the thrust of the little passage of this teaching as he stood there talking to the people around him was just this. There's going to be a shut door and you'll seek and you won't be able to get in. Look at verse 24. Make every effort to enter the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. 
Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. And he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And you'll say, don't be absurd. We ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. You're familiar to us and we're familiar to you. We went regularly to hear your word. And he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. He will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, those that are first, last will be first and the first will be last. That teasing sentence that comes so often in our Lord's teaching. Now, there's no doubt, I think, with regard to verse 30, and indeed with regard to this teaching, that in the first place it probably referred to the Jewish people. Referred to the fact that they'd had so many opportunities, but they missed them all. And that many from all over the world would come into the kingdom, and that's been proved true, and the Jews would find themselves shut out. But I think we have to say that that basic principle remains true for all time. Take uh, ancient Asia, which is modern Turkey. They were the first to hear the gospel. Now, you can only find 12 or 15 Christian people in Ankara and practically no churches in that vast, vast continent. The first to become last. What about modern Europe? Well, certainly the early missionaries came up uh, very much at the beginning, didn't they, to evangelize all that we now call Europe, and yet Europe is far, far behind at the moment. And other parts of the world, well, they're clambering into the kingdom of God at a tremendous rate whereas Europe is a dead black spot. Now tonight, what I'm going to do is we look at this passage. I'm going to do what we've been doing on Tuesday. We find it very profitable when we come to a passage like this when there's so much to look at to focus our eyes on the central figure that is Jesus the teacher. I want us to focus our minds on him and listen to what he has to say and put away as a result of this all the second-hand faith and second-hand doubts that possess us. To look at Jesus and to say, what are the hallmarks of this great teacher talking to these people on his way to Jerusalem that are always the hallmarks of Jesus as he teaches us today? And there are three that I want to mention. And the first thing that confronts us is his authority. Now everybody noticed it. From the very moment he went into the synagogue, for the first time as a young man and began to preach, everybody noticed his amazing authority. He didn't refer to any authorities except himself. You'd be shocked if I did that, or any of the other stuff. Here, I've got my authority in the pulpit. I've opened it. I've asked you to look at it. I want you to check whether I say what is there or not. I'm not proposing to uh, tell you what I think about the life of the world to come, because I don't know anything about it at all. It's all a complete darkness as far as I'm concerned. I've never been there. I've never been told anything about it. I've had no vision from God. So my authority is plainly upon this. There it is, in front of me on this large wooden stand, and I'm going to speak from that. And I'm going to say to you, this Bible, this Jesus is saying this. I'm not going to say, I tell you. But notice his authority. He keeps saying things like this. Look at the little phrase, I tell you, in verse 24. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. I tell you, many will try to enter and will not. Now, I thought that's interesting. I tell you, that's his authority. And so, just uh, as a matter of interest, I opened this Bible out in front of me in my study and started to count up the I tell you's. So will you do that with me as we start at the top of page 1046? Look at verse 51. No, I tell you, but division is what I come to bring. Not very comfortable. 
Verse 59. I tell you, you will not get out until you pay the last penny. Verse 3. I tell you, no, unless you repent, you too will perish. Verse 5. I tell you, no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Verse 35. And so on. And you must have noticed it, or when it has been read to you uh, uh, in church or school or whatever it is. Again and again, Jesus turns to people and says, Verily, verily, I say to you, Amen, Amen, I say. They used to say, but I say. Don't listen to them, listen to me. This incredible authority. And as a result of this, of course, people responded by saying, Who on earth do you think you are? How do you know that you're right? How do you know uh, what's going to happen? How can you tell us, for example, that we will stand before God pleading to get in and that he will answer, I don't know, you go away? How do you know that? Well, the answer to that is very striking. So keeping your finger there, will you turn back to Matthew chapter 7 and you'll see why Jesus knows that. It might seem most impertinent to say that that will be the scenario at the end of time, that we shall be knocking on God's door and God will say to us, no, I don't want to, Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus, how do you know what God is going to do? And the astonishing answer at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is that the one who's going to exercise authority on that judgment day is none other than Jesus. So incidentally, whatever your view of Jesus may be tonight, and you may go away of this church tonight, determined to have nothing more to do with the church, with Christ, with the Bible, with the Christians here, you may decide to turn your back on Jesus, but I have to tell you that you will meet him. Because God has assigned to him the work of judging everybody at the last day. And here it is in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things? Then I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from you, me, you evildoers. You see? The same language, the same pictures, but this time not a picture of what God is going to say, but a picture of what he's going to say. And he tells us at the end of the Sermon of the Mount that we'll be talking to him on that great day. Isn't that awesome? I'll be talking to Christ, giving him an account. And he will deliver the verdict. And what will the sentence be? Whether I'm going to live with Jesus forever or be outside. So the moment we open the Bible, we find that Jesus speaks as one who has authority. He's not only going to be the judge on the last day, but he's come from the realms of heaven to tell us about them. He's come from the realms of the world to come to tell us authoritatively what we can expect after death. So, we can't be agnostics any longer. You can be an ignoramus, if you like, and the word ignoramus and agnostic are very, very close cousins. You can be an ignoramus, but you can't be an agnostic, because God has clearly spoken through Jesus Christ, his authoritative son. And yet it's amazing how often you read something like this. I was reading the biography of Peter Scott, whom I greatly admire, the naturalist, and also a great uh, naval hero during the war. And like so many people, he seems to pay very little attention to the things of God, even at the end of his life. But Elspeth Huxley, the writer, says this towards the end of the book. Peter was not an atheist who says there is no God. He was an agnostic who says, I don't know. He went on asking these eternal questions, and to him, as to the walrus, the carpenter, and the oysters, answer came there none. You see? That's frivolous. There's an important writer talking about an important man, and that's all they can say about it. That he'd asked the questions and God never answered. 
When the moment I open this book in here, I find God setting out many questions. And if I don't hear what he says, I must be deaf indeed. Now, in one sense, we are agnostic, of course. There are many questions that we cannot answer, and we've been thinking about this uh, during the past week. There are moments when it is better for us to say nothing. There are problems and mysteries we can't solve. It would have been better for the three comforters of Job if they kept their mouths shut. There were no comfort to Job, and that often happens when we're out of our depth. But, of course, we do know, because Jesus has taught us many things, and we ought not to be like... uh, ordinary non-Christians, and talk during this last week after this appalling tragedy as though we know nothing, as though the whole thing is utterly bewildering. I got rather tired of people saying, I'm just bewildered. But we don't have to be wholly bewildered. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, will you, for a moment. I know this is not immediately on our subject, and yet it's relevant to it. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, and Matthew chapter 18, verse 5 following, and see if this does not thread some, uh, throw some light on uh, the happenings of the past week. Matthew 18, verse 5. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. Jesus is a realist about sin and war and horrors and suffering. But woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fires of hell. It's not comfortable, is it? Terrible things are going to happen. Woe to the man by whom they happen. And what about the little ones? The Greek word here is used of children up to about about, about 12 years old in the Gospels. And see what is said in verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you, notice the authority again, he alone has got the authority to speak like this, for I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Isn't that a reassurance? Don't you need to know that? Don't the mothers of Dunblane need to know that? There's no need to be agnostic about that. Our assurance then about heaven is entirely dependent upon Jesus. And if we want to have that glorious hope for those children, then we have to say by the same token that what we know about hell and missing the way to eternal life is also based upon his authority. Now it is on the authority of Jesus that we're talking about tonight that the church has orders to teach these things and has done so for 2,000 years until in recent years we seem to have got rather weak and pussy-footed about it all. I want to say another thing about this authority that the church has been given through Jesus Christ to teach these things, that this authority of Jesus has never been superseded. It's one of the extraordinary things. He has spoken about heaven, he has spoken about hell, and nobody has ever been able to say anything more that can add to it or take away from it. Let me give an absurd illustration about authority. I think, for example, of Professor Gutt. Professor Gutt is a great surgeon. He's written the uh, textbook that all young surgeons-to-be have to read. It's got five million pages, and it's called A Stitch in Time. And for 25 years, the guys in all these hospitals, as you know so well, this is the book you've got to know, and have read from cover to cover if you expect to pull the wall over your examiners. And for three generations, Professor Gutt 
uh, makes a very great deal of money because this book is very uh, valuable and you have to go to your bank man to get enough to buy it. And then suddenly, Professor Gutz, the stitch in time, becomes completely passé. It is superseded. And the new great guru is Professor Gore with his new textbook, Looking Through the Keyhole, with the revolutionary new techniques that mean the knife may be put away. Now, that's a familiar picture. Of course, I put it in words that are ridiculous, but it's familiar in any walk of life that the person who was an authority 50 years ago is no longer the authority. Their books are superseded. They gather uh, 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 dust in the shelves, and we have to look to somebody else. However, if you walk around here and look at the door case that our architect has put in, he's had uh, put above that door case some remarkable words that were spoken about Jesus, about his own teaching. What Jesus had to say to teach about his own teaching is very fascinating. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In other words, my authority will never be superseded. I'm giving you the last word, and it will remain the last word forever. And so we celebrated that above that door. So that if Jesus was the authority then, and he's the authority now, and nobody will ever supersede his words, then we're wise to live by them and die by them. And one of the great things I think that St. Helens does offer are these courses. I won't go into that. No doubt William will talk to you about them. DC and R, R, Read, Mark, Learn, which I value enormously as opportunities to sit under the teaching of Jesus Christ and to learn from him. It's not just an academic thing, of course, because to learn from him is to submit to his authority. Take my yoke and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for yourselves. So the first thing we notice is we look at this narrow door, and we look at this very basic teaching that he's giving in the towns and villages, is this astonishing authority that Jesus has to talk about these eternal truths. Now more quickly, I want to notice another thing which is a little bit more uncomfortable, and that is his severity. Uh, William has been right to stress the mercy and compassion and kindness of God, and that's written all over the Gospel. But sometimes when you open the Gospel page and you read one morning, you're stunned by its severity. And again, in order to show that I'm not cheating and not trying to make a case for this false, I want you to look at this page as a whole which you've got in front of you. And if you've been just nodding off for a bit, would you open it again and come back to page 1046 and 1047? And we'll run down it, and I think you'll see what I mean by this astonishing severity. Top of the first column, page 10046, that's 46. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Do you think I came to bring peace? No, I tell you, but division. 12.54. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say it's going to rain. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. You know how to do that, but you don't read the signs of the times. Not exactly the makings of a popular preacher, this, is it? 13, 1 to 5. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifice. It was a horror, rather like last week, only, of course, to the adults. And Jesus said, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, unless you all repent, you likewise will perish. Verse 14. 
Well, we won't go into that again, but he calls some religious leaders uh, uh, hypocrites. Verses 27, 28. Uh, again, we've seen that. Now, what about the end of the chapter? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. Very, very severe teaching. On every line in those two pages, it is stunningly severe. And yet I just want to add something, lest you should get a false impression. I'm going to call it severity with tears. For turn over just two more pages, so we get to chapter 19 of Luke, and we get another situation of Jesus approaching Jerusalem and speaking terrible words about it, and yet this time with tears. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Terrible severity, but severity with tears. Look back to Luke for a moment in Luke 13. As we come to the end of those two pages, you'll see that Jesus has gone to a dinner party, and you might imagine that this was not time for severity. I don't think if you and I go to a dinner party, and it's certainly true for me, that I suddenly get up and preach some great severe doctrine of the Bible. I don't think I'd be very welcome if I did that. It would be embarrassing and awkward. I went to the Merchant Taylor's where I was dined and wined a few weeks ago. It would have been very awkward if I got up and done that. But Jesus did. I think the word that comes to my mind is the word formidable. Just look at him at supper in the Pharisee's house. Just look at verse 3 when he's dealing with the experts in the law. They're all watching to see if he will heal on this particular day and he challenges them. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They're silent. He then turns to the guests in verse 7 and notices how they were all trying to get the top places. And he says, when somebody invites you to a wedding feast, my advice is to go to the bottom of the row so that you won't be humiliated if you go to the top and are then pushed down. Long silence. Verse 12. In the silence that follows, he turns to the host. I have advice for you. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your rich neighbors, but invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, blame, uh, blind, and the lame, and you'll be blessed. Silence must have been even more deep. At that moment, a sentimentalist, you, you meet these people in life, don't you, explodes with a pious comment. Verse 15, Oh, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Oh, wonderful. Jesus replied, A certain man prepared a great banquet, but no one would accept the invitation. It's formidable, isn't it? Each person at the service, yeah, at, the, at, at the luncheon, at the dinner, is spoken to, and spoken to with severe words. And what is it that he's severe about, actually? Well, as we saw in Jerusalem, it's that the prophets were sent. The word and the message came to them and knocked at their door, and they would not listen. And when God speaks to us and we will not listen, then his response is always one of severity. Authority, severity, and then, very briefly, urgency. Authority, this is the truth. It's not just my idea not just what the world needs to hear 
It's God's truth through his Son. Severity, it really matters. It's good to be faced with the facts. They're not comfortable facts, but we better know the truth. And then urgency. Not just truth to be discussed, but action to take. I rather like the directness of it. Let's come back to our passage. We haven't spent enough time on it. Notice the you. Uh, Let's start at verse uh, 25. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, and I can imagine him not looking up at the sky or looking around, but looking directly at the little group of people who are listening to him. And I'm going to look at you, if I can look at the Bible and you at the same time. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. And he will answer, I don't know you. And you will say, we ate and drank. And he will reply, I don't know you. Very, very personal, isn't it? What's obvious, I think, from this passage is that the Jesus who loved mankind is not shocked by these facts. He's not shocked by the existence of hell. What shocks him is the hardness of people's hearts. That's why he's always waking them up, alerting them, and waking us up as well. And one of the ways that he woke them up, and one of the ways he wants to wake us up tonight, is to remind us that on that day God's decision is final. There's no chance to sit the exam again. The decision is not going to be changed. There's no second chance. Dismiss. Out. Entrance gate irrevocably shut. No opposition, no opportunity to reconsider. The opportunity is past forever. Well, if that sounds very hard-hearted to me, is God really like that? Well, I suppose all we can say tonight is that if you want to see what God is like, you go up to the uh, the approaches of Jerusalem and you watch as Jesus draws near to the city. Speaks terrifying words about it, but he's in tears. He's not unmoved, he's not unfeeling. He weeps as one who has said everything and will do everything to bear that punishment and pain himself. But still, men won't listen. And because they won't listen now, there will come a day when they knock at the door and find that God doesn't listen. That's what he meant by hell. Question, will the Bimini say Answer. Make sure that you enter. Make every effort and do it now. Well, let's pray together. Wonderfully down to earth. Lord, are there many who will be saved or few? Make every effort to enter now. For there will come a day when many will knock and not be able to enter. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, the Word of God made flesh. We thank you that his teaching is entirely without jargon, that all of us can understand it, and that none of us is without excuse, and not one of us can be an agnostic in these matters. We pray that we may accept the responsibility of those who have heard our judge speaking, so that we may seek forgiveness now. And we pray that for all our friends as well. For Jesus' sake. Amen.